Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Uh, we have a new rogue, and that's John Epperson. John, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm John Epperson. I've been in the Ruby and Rails community for about 12, working on my 13th year now. I've always pretty much worked on these large ERP type projects throughout my whole career, done a lot of DevOps work, author of Shiplane. That's actually what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago, which is more of a DevOps type tool. And that's always been a huge interest of mine. So that's me. Nice. I'm Charles Maxwood. We are working on getting the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job in audiobook form out. So if it's early January, go look on Audible because that's where I'm going to be posting it. If you can't find it, then go look on Twitter and bother me and, and I'll let you know when it's going to be out there. We have a special guest and that is Mithun Dar. I hope I said that right. Yes, you absolutely did. Uh, thanks so much. Hey, everyone. My name is Mithun Dar. I lead developer relations at Here Technologies. Uh, you know, although developer relations is sort of uh, a given and uh, quite common these days, uh, back when I started uh, 20 years ago while I was at Microsoft Research, this was sort of an appendage to a job that I had. And I think we have come a long way where, you know, developer evangelism, advocacy, and developer relations has sort of become mainstream. And I work at Here Technologies uh, where we are building location services and location platforms that's powering um, a lot of different things uh, from your delivery, uh, food delivery applications to your ride sharing applications to, you know, some of the drones uh, that you might have and every single package that gets uh, delivered to you from Amazon. We are the services powering uh, behind in the back end. I'm excited uh, to be talking to Charles and all of you. I love you guys then, because all that nice stuff shows up on my porch. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Before it then gets stolen by somebody else. <laughs> yeah, we have a ring doorbell, so we can at least see their face when they do it. So you can Fair. see the crime happening. That's right. And so the Google can spy on my neighbors. Which, which yeah, I was going to say, that opens a new can of worms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let's not, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, some of that stuff's pretty scary. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So we're, we're talking about location services and. I remember back in the day when I had like a TomTom appliance that, you know, I stuck in my car and plugged into the little, um, they're outlets now. They used to be the cigarette lighters that were built into yes. the cars, but nobody uses them for that anymore. But yeah, you know, so you'd plug it in and it would update things. And then you had to like plug it into your computer to run the updates and anymore. I mean, it's, it's easier to built into the car, right? Yeah. Or it's on your phone. And just to give a little bit more background, I worked for a company called public engines and their front end stuff was crimereports.com. They're not around anymore, but I did a lot of the geocoding and geofencing work for them. And oh, wow. So, okay. And this was like eight, nine years ago. So it's been a while and I've played with it since then. 
But it's always interesting to see where this has gone, especially at this point, since I kind of carry my location stuff in my pocket, in my phone. Yes. And I don't think about it when I need to navigate to somewhere. Or I don't think about it when like Grubhub or uh, Uber, Eats, Uber Eats or whatever yeah. shows up at my house, right? They, they just know where to go. And yeah. yeah, all this stuff is kind of automatic. You know, Same thing with like Uber and Lyft. So yeah, do you want to just uh, talk a little bit about how we need to be thinking about location now? Because the way that we thought about it before was, where is this point on the map and how do I show people that? And now it's, how do I help people live their lives so that they know where they are and where they're going? Amazing stuff has happened in the last 20, 25 years or so, especially in the location space. And the beauty about this technology is it's so seamlessly integrated and gone into the background that, you know, we take it for granted. Like some of the things that you were talking about, uh, Charles, like, uh, you know, when, uh, when a package gets delivered to your porch or uh, when, when your food comes, comes and shows up, you know, you don't think about all the complexity that went behind. You know, you just think that, oh, it's an app that uh, that restaurants uh, and consumers just use to, you know, automatically deliver food when you whenever you want it. But, but you know, I think um, once you start peeling the layers, you'll, you'll start seeing how complex it is. You know, just just an uh, anecdote, you know, all the way, uh, my first use was pre-GPS. Uh, you know, I think it was circa... 2001 or 2002, Microsoft had this product, I don't know if any of you remember, called uh, Microsoft Street Maps or Microsoft Streets. You know, it was this early version before a GPS was uh, prevalent where, you know, you had this small device and a CD uh, that came that you could load it up. And this device was actually getting the GPS coordinates real time. And it would uh, show you where uh, where you're on the map. And I used that uh, for a road trip back back in the day. I'm sure I have a few pictures. I'll send it to you later. But you know, we we drove from Seattle to California, and that was and I, it, I was awestruck because you know this was tracking my car in real time. This was showing we never got lost. And that was such a luxury back then, right? Like otherwise you had to pull up in a gas station or something, open up this big weird map and try to figure out which is north, which is south, and then navigate. Fast forward a generation today and my kids are even, even, you know, some of the younger kids these days don't know what it is to be lost. You know, no matter which part of the world you're in, you know where you are. That where you are, that location piece is so ubiquitous now. And, and you know, a whole industry has spawned around it. And these services uh, and uh, like, like all the location services, the ones that you were mentioning, you know, geocoding, geofencing, we were talking about that earlier. You know, all of these have become so ubiquitous and so easy to use that is present in uh, all the applications. I'll just talk about the complexity, right? Like when you fire up your Uber app, the first thing that your Uber app uh, wants to know is where you are, right? And once it identifies that, it wants to know how many people are in and around uh, your vicinity first in a minute, uh, within a minute, within three minutes, within five minutes, because that's how long uh, you're willing to wait for the cab to come. Once that is identified, both the, dri both the driver and the passenger are notified. And then when the passenger or when the driver says, yes, I want to pick up this passenger, the route guidance starts. And the route guidance, when the route guidance starts, that is a location service. You know, the, then you get an ETA that your, ca that your Uber will arrive in three or five minutes. That ETA is a service. And uh, the whole traffic update uh, along the way 
that is another location service. Once he or she comes to you uh, in the Uber, you board in and you put your, you, uh, and, and, it, uh, and when the driver accepts from that point, a new address comes in. That address lookup is a service. From there, you know, when, when you start navigating again, you get an ETA saying this is where you'll be and, um, you know, any traffic incidents along the way, you'll get notified. All of those are services. So just in this small scenario, if none of these location services were there, which again became ubiquitous in the last five to seven years and have been in development for the last 15 or so years, you know, we wouldn't have an Uber, we wouldn't have Deliveroo, we wouldn't know where our packages are or how many stops away they are from. You know, we wouldn't know the weather in different locations at different zip codes and so on and so forth. So the point that I want to emphasize is, you know, we use location on a every day, almost every moment basis, but it is so seamlessly integrated. That is the beauty of location services that we don't have to particularly pay attention, but it is always there. And then you have useless cases of GPS with Pokemon Go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know. Define useless. I'm a little offended, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. My Charizard's going to come over there and kick your butt. <laughs> Okay, how do I use this, right? How do I know that my app needs it? And then how yeah. do I use it so that I can make people's lives more convenient or better or how, you know, whatever measure I'm using to say, this has value for me having somebody's location? Look, I think, I think like I was saying earlier, uh, Chuck, like there's location seamlessly integrated into, the, into all aspects of our life uh, from, um, uh, you know, everything that we do on a day-to-day basis. You know, uh, hey, hey, Alexa, how long will it take for me to go to my office? Hey, what does the uh, traffic situation look like? And some of the cars that have uh, uh, the newer navigation system are actually keeping us uh, very safe with, with self-healing maps built in. Let's say there was an oil, uh, oil spill somewhere along uh, the freeway or there was a major accident, then your maps uh, are automatically trying to fix that. Uh, yeah, reroute uh, you around reroute it. Reroute you and uh, take you, uh, fix the, uh, yeah, you know, reroute you and take you through a much safer way and help you get to your destination in, in a much easier way. When a package is getting delivered, you know, uh, for the FedEx driver, UPS driver, whoever uh, the delivery services, it automatically gets you to the building and shows where the entry points and exit points are. For self-driving cars, you know, we have what we call as HD maps, which are centimeter level accuracy, you know, um, wow. uh, 10, uh, 10 centimeters or less. Because think about it, right? Like uh, some of the general mapping services that you use uh, have a 20 to 40 feet accuracy. But 20 to 40 feet in a self-driving car could mean life or death, meaning you're stopping <laughs> at the middle of the intersection or you're stopping <laughs> just before the intersection at the door uh, or the gate of that building. So we have now developed, um, uh, you know, um, centimeter level accuracy maps that that are um, being used in conjunction with LiDAR and all the other technologies for that's that's propelling autonomous driving cars that will improve the lives of people. Think about uh, maps for drones, right? Your maps for drones don't care about your aerial networks, but it cares about how tall buildings are, where a drone parking is available, which uh, how tall is your tree and how tall is the tree in front of your porch going to be in a year from now, you know, because the drone has to make its way and put it uh, put that package on your porch. So these are some of the things, you know, that all cutting edge technology that we are working on that's going to propel and make people's lives so much better. Yeah, I guess what I'm aiming at is I'm going to caveat my example by saying that it's a terrible, terrible idea. But (laughs) it gives us kind of an entry point to talk about this. But let's say that Mm -hmm. I build a podcast listening app Mm -hmm. and 
what it does is it shows podcasters where people are listening to their shows, right? So it has the location service built in. And so it shows, you know, a lot of people are listening, driving down the freeway in Atlanta, and a lot of other people are driving, you know, through some back roads in the middle of Wyoming listening, you know, and the phone's mm-hmm. pinging and it's listening to my podcast. So I'm, you know, I'm seeing that they listen to it there. How would I start building something like that in? And just, again, give the caveat. I think it's a terrible violation of people's privacy. They should be able to listen <laughs> where they want. But just for the sake of argument, right? How would I build something like that and, and take advantage of location services there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there are specific APIs that gives you, let's let's say you have a podcast app that is installed on somebody's phone. You could have, you could use uh, some of our services, our positioning API, for example. Our positioning API will give you the details about where, uh, you know, based on cell phone tower and Wi-Fi signals, it'll tell you where your app is being used. And based on that, you could, you could tailor the content. Let's say this is being, uh, you, you know, this app is being installed in, uh, uh, Russia, for example. And if you have Russian-speaking podcast languages, then you could enhance this experience for your user based on the location that they are in and, and give them more relevant and more contextual applications. And that way, you'll be providing more value-added service mm. uh, for your developers. And how easy is this to use? You know, in less than 30 seconds, you can create an account on developer.here.com use a, and, and get started to use our positioning API, which is basically a REST call, and you embed that in your, uh, in your application. If you think about the world uh, as, as a and trust the world, um, you know your app can be more contextual, more uh, tailored uh, to the user, and and uh, frankly improves uh, the overall satisfaction and um, of the service that you're offering for your user because you've helped them make it better without asking a bunch of questions, asking them to select this and that, so on and so forth. Right. The other question I have this comes more from my uh, work experience. You know, building the uh, location-based stuff, you know, where we were working with crime data and things like that is, mm-hmm. I mean, we just installed like PostGIS on a database and then we managed a lot of the geolocation arithmetic and work ourselves. Mm-hmm. So at what point are you going to be wanting to look for a service like here? And at what point can you just kind of fudge it with a database that you manage on your own? That is a fantastic question. And and that goes to the extent of the offering that we have. Unlike most other companies, our entire business is built on location services and our location platform, right? So we have we have a studio uh, that allows you to bring location data, massage the location data, and basically manage the entire data, all your location data, and then expose that data as a service, or even view that data on a on a map in in a very seamless way. If you today go to uh, developer.here.com and uh, sign up for our XYZ application, that is what I'm talking about. On another hand, let's say you have uh, you have terabytes and terabytes of data, which is usually the case for most uh, geospatial data because, uh, you know, there is an abundance, but there is also uh, not a lot of tools or a lot of big data aspect to it where people uh, people are just overwhelmed to not even know where to get started. This is where our uh, open location uh, platform runtime uh, comes into picture, where you can take this big data, uh, analyze it, and get uh, insights on top of this. Can, you can build pipelines, uh, and then you know, uh, using a pipeline, you can build your own service, merge it with our data, your data, customize its own data, and then you know, publish that service and even monetize if you so wish to through our marketplace. 
And if you are developing with geolocation, just mm-hmm. keep in mind that there are two different types. You have active and passive. If you're doing active geolocation, then that means when you launch your application, it's going to try to get your location and it might track it every few seconds while you have the app in the forefront. Passive is when it's still tracking it in the background, something like a mapping software Mm -hmm. or directions. And doing passive tracking, I think, is not only potentially kind of falling on that side of, do you really need to be doing this? But it also just kills the battery of the device. Yeah, that is that is a really good point. And and again, you know, as a good application developer, I'm hoping that you know people would take uh, take note of some of this and not use it uh, extensively. Uh, and and also, you know, there is a cost to it, right? Like if you're constantly polling, it constantly goes as a service. So you know, while you get two hundred fifty thousand services service calls uh, for free through the here platform, which is the best in the uh, industry right now, there is a cost associated if you if you constantly poll your uh, applications all the time that eventually needs to be borne by the application developer. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, back to the original question that I was asking where we were mapping crime data, right. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, did it happen within this uh, shape that people had given us? We got by fine using post GIS, right. We could do a little bit of arithmetic and it would just work. And so for kind of the smaller use cases where you're getting a collection of data points, you're doing a little bit of math on it and you're working off of that to maybe get latitude, longitude and drop it on Google Maps, I don't think you need a service like here. But if you're going to do something that is more involved where it's, you know, like you're saying with clearances and building heights and, you know, we need down to the centimeter accuracy or I need wider mapping or streets or things like that, you have data that I'm not going to get from a post-GIS, right? And, yeah. and I don't have the capacity to send cars driving around with LIDAR to figure out, okay, the building shape like this. And so right. in those cases, it makes a lot more sense to go with a service like yours because you're just going to have that all out of the box. And so then I can just say, okay, what am I driving through and what aspects of this do I actually care about? Where in the other case, I'm just putting points on a map and I can do that on my own. Yeah, even to that uh, first scenario, you know, we have that data as well, right? So you have a bunch of addresses, and you want the lat long for those addresses. Mm-hmm. Hey, use our geocoder. You know, we are yep. we are we are cheaper, we are faster, we are better, and we have more tools that can allow you to build around your use case in a more efficient way. Or you have lat longs, and you need an address uh, for that. We have a re- reverse geocoder, yeah. which will look up. You know, or you want to say like wherever the crime happened, what are some of the places in and around that had a gun shop? You know, we have that places. If you think about a map, each of these, you know, you have a base map and Mm -hmm. then you have addresses as one layer. You have the lat long as another layer. You have uh, places as another layer. You have temperature as another layer. So each of these layers are nothing but attributes. And our maps have over, uh, you know, 800 attributes for every square inch on this planet that we have laid out. Yeah, I uh, I think my point though is, is if you need those databases, use here. If you don't, then yeah, you, you, you don't. You know, we have just plain services as well. That's what I was uh, getting at. Yeah. Back in the day, I tried uh, downloading OpenStreetMaps to host on my own environment to just make API calls out to. Yeah. And unless if you have like gigabytes of RAM, terabytes of storage, don't try. <laughs> <laughs> don't try this at home. <laughs> 
Yes, you know, OpenStreetMaps uh, is also a popular choice uh, amongst developers and others. Where we come in as we, we, we are enterprise-grade uh, maps. We come with SLAs. We keep, with the, we keep the freshest data in the whole world. Our analysts uh, have put us ahead of Google Maps consistently in the past two years, uh, saying we have the best location platform in the world right now. And, and also why, you know, a lot of Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 companies use us. So I was just going to ask, it sounds like probably the primary way that I would use your service, right, is mm-hmm. you have an API out there. Are there other ways that I would be using it? If I had, for example, a little device or something, would I use your services a little bit differently? Or am I always pinging your APIs? At the end of the day, it depends on the scenario, right? Like, I mean, we have content, we have APIs and services, we have products that will help you design and visualize your maps uh, and customize your maps. So yeah, you know, it depends on the scenario, I guess. Let's say you have a small IoT device uh, that's a tracking device and you want to know the location of this. In that case, you know, you're using a, a combination of our APIs and services and also products that'll sort of show you where on the map it is. And then you could potentially, you know, even visualize that on, on a map, then customize the map and publish the map. So yeah, you could use APIs, you could use our uh, shrink-wrap products, you could use uh, uh, some of our other tools, so it depends largely on the scenario, John. No problem. That's exactly what I was going for. One question around, and I know this is probably just due to poor development, but mm-hmm. how does a company like Apple get Apple Maps so wrong the first go around? Where, I mean, things are just absolutely horribly inaccurate. <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> in other way, I always uh, say is, look, we've been in the mapping business for 25 years or a little over 25 years now. And it is not an easy problem to solve as Apple has uh, demonstrated in the past and, and in some ways continues to demonstrate, you know, mapping is a really, really hard problem to solve. And if a company that has literally unlimited amount of resources, money is struggling, it shows you the complexity that is involved in getting maps right. Look, I'm not at Apple, but I know you know, where some of the shortcomings are. It is it is an insanely complex task that has a high degree of automation and a high degree of uh, relevant uh, reliance on uh, uh, actual people looking at the uh, at a centimeter level at every single road, uh, 6.8 million miles of road that, that is driven on a day-to-day basis. And then, you know, we are fixing patch by patch, day by day. We have over 4,000 people uh, in our Mumbai offices looking at this in three shifts every single day to keep the information accurate and actually say that, oh, that lane is a left-only lane or this is a right-only lane. Oh, here's a U-turn that's permitted. Oh, this is the road sign. And, you know, things are improving with automation. Things are improving with uh, devices and uh, sensors that are being mounted on cars, which capture road signs, etc. But still, there's a high degree of human intervention that goes on as well. But again, you know, I want to close it with uh, the point that I brought up earlier that mapping is a very, very complex and hard task. And, you know, that, that shows to where we are. Did that give you a little sense, Dave? Yeah, I'm just wondering how it ever even passed QA. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no comments on that. <laughs> My understanding is, is that it worked great in and around Cupertino. In so, their defense, yeah. in their defense, uh, uh, so first of all, I do not have, I mean, I have a MacBook, but otherwise I don't have Apple products. But in their defense, they're supposedly making it better all the time. So I don't know. I'm not necessarily trying to like fanboy here, but I I think we all sometimes totally fail and stumble over ourselves. I have during my career. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Me too. It just doesn't get national attention. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other thing though is like if Google Maps hadn't been out and hadn't been, you know, so much nicer at the time, then it would have been a different story, right? It would have been, well, sometimes it's a little bit wonky, but it's still so nice. But because we had something to compare it to, it didn't help it. But yeah. Both services are doing a lot, you know, they do a lot better now. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, to, to also on that note, say like, you know, Google services also had a leg up of uh, what, 15 years, I think, uh, before Apple service, Apple maps launched. So, you know. So true. And Apple also totally made it worse by taking Google maps off the store during that time. Oh, I didn't. If I recall correctly, I had an Apple phone during that time. And I just remember I couldn't have Google Maps for a little while. Oh, I see. (laughs) Yeah. I think they have since come around. Like on CarPlay, you can now have Google Maps or the Waze app on your CarPlay before. And for a while, it was only Apple Maps. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Okay. Yeah. They've also fixed it depending uh, on the app you're in, where if you tap anything that is a location that gets tagged as a location, it used to automatically always open it in Apple. It's funny because I don't know why some apps, but not others, but some apps, you can, it'll give you the option of picking Google or Apple. And other apps, it's just like mm, Apple. I see. I have a feeling, you know, in the programming interface somewhere by default, you know, when somebody makes a call, it opens up Apple Maps because you're using iOS. I'm guessing, I don't know, I've not, not used it. But developers, I'm guessing, have an option to uh, give a, uh, any other mapping software that's installed on the phone to be, you know, uncommented or in the code so that it becomes live or, or use the other option. I'm guessing that that might be it. But look, I mean, I, I have not used Apple Maps or Google Maps. I use here Maps. So yeah, some of, some of these experiences are not native yeah. to me. And some of my experiences with just the geolocation is creating a geofencing. So many years ago, I created a web application and a mobile application using RubyMotion for the mobile side, which would track a user's location for a company. And that employee would be able to clock in and clock out. But you could set perimeters so they could only do it within a certain area. So you can... Mm -hmm adjusted so they can only clock in at the work locations. So that prevented people from clocking in as they are driving to work and all that stuff. That was uh, one good use case. And I was actually able to really just do it by tracking the location of the phone. So it was doing active tracking. So only while you had the app open. And once they were to clock in, it just sent the geo coordinates to the server The server would then look at the list of databases that that company has set up. It would find their closest matching. And if it was within a certain percentage or a certain distance, then it would automatically allocate their time to that location or to that job costing. So that was one fun way to do it with only using the GPS device Mm -hmm. within the phone and then just having a list of coordinates on my database and you can do some fancy formulas to calculate the distance on the sphere. Yeah, great point, Dave. Uh, you know, I mean, um, the, the use cases, uh, as, as uh, you mentioned, uh, 
are unlimited, right? Like, I mean, uh, and unfathomable because there's so much you could do with it. Simple example, right? If you have uh, Amazon app installed and if you're a prime customer, once a delivery truck comes in the vicinity, I think it's five miles, two miles, whatever that number is, you get a notification saying, hey, your package is six stops away, seven stops away, so on and so forth. Meaning that, you know, in the two mile radius, uh, there are five more stops or six more stops that they have to do before it gets to you. That's another example of how geofencing sort of adds value to you. If you have Nest at home, it's it's a simple toggle switch. You know, hey, if my phone is present, turn the camera off. If my phone is not present, turn the camera on. That's another value-added service. So as soon as you leave home, your Nest cameras are on and recording and monitoring. And as soon as you come home, it, it automatically turns off so that, you know, you're not wasting energy and you're, you're optimizing the camera uh, for better feeds. And it also protects your privacy in case, you know, somebody hacks into it or something. The camera is off because you are at home. So these are, you know, some of the small uh, scenarios, right, uh, that showcases. And again, in, on the industrial side, you know, the applications of this are far more advanced, far more different. So, yeah, those are also there. Yeah, we get bit by that bug every now and then. Whenever we take a road trip, our thermosets, they're the Nest thermosets, they'll mm-hmm. detect that we're both away. So it'll put it into an eco-friendly mode. So during the summer, it has a high and low protection. So the house doesn't get too hot or too cold. Mm-hmm. But we'll go on a road trip. It'll be like 85 degrees inside the house. And we have to remember <laughs> when we are like six hours away on our way back, to yeah. turn it off so the house will be nice and cool when we get home. Otherwise, it's just like <laughs> blistering hot. <laughs> that is why I think, you know, if uh, uh, developers, especially app developers, need to start paying attention to location and leverage the location services in a way that, that can enhance customers' experiences. It should not become an afterthought. It should become, you know, a part and parcel of building your applications. And, 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 and in fact, if, if you start thinking about location from the get-go, you really can do a lot of amazing things with, within almost any app, all the way from Chuck's uh, podcast app uh, to Nest to Amazon, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of it can add value to our lives. I'm still waiting for... Uh someone to put together some sort of blend of maps and weather so that it says, this is going to be what your weather is like all along your trip. So for example, like I live on the East Coast, we drive Mm -hmm. through mountains, right? I want to know if it's snowing in the mountains when we're in the mountains. I don't care if it's snowing in our destination or in my house. That's what I want to know. But that's a harder thing to do. Dream, right? You know, it's it's uh, if you if you if you actually break down the complexity, what you need is let's say you're driving in your car. Most of the cars today have uh, 3G, at least 3G services, and you know they are constantly pinging. So all it needs is uh, uh, at least you know uh, now now that you mention, uh, I have a car that shows uh, there's a weather app on the screen on the nav screen. And the weather app automatically keeps uh, updating the weather as I'm driving through it because it, it shows a sun. It's close, but yeah, uh, it doesn't warn me or anything, but, but it, sh- it keeps updating wherever I am. So that's, yeah. what, that's what it's doing, you know. And again, we have a weather API, which does exactly that based on, um, you know, your location. And uh, it could be streaming or it could be a static one. Oh, yeah. If someone makes yeah. that app, you should let me know. <laughs> I will buy it. Yeah, I think there's a new business idea there. Yeah, because my wife does the same thing. Like when we're driving down to her parents' house, houses, mm-hmm. they both live in the same town. It's uh, like two hours away. And yeah, she takes, checks like three weather stations. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> before we leave. And yeah, I, I love that idea where essentially it's, well, you're going to be in the vicinity of this weather station in, you know, in an hour, right? So the weather there should look like this. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So much to do, so much to do. And so many, uh, like I said, you know, there are, there are, it's, it's literally the opportunity for developers uh, right now. It's, it's, I really think it's a golden age for developers. Uh, if you think about it, you know, your, your hardware or infrastructure needs have literally been democratized. Most of the data that you need is available in the form of services. Programming languages have become so easy from when, you know, I don't know, I started coding in, you know, uh, somewhere in the mid 90s and compared to today, it's a breeze uh, to, to build an application or, uh, you know, even develop a solution or anything. It, it really, you know, just limited by developers imagination right now on what they can do and how they can do. But, yeah. but literally, you could, you could conquer a lot. So I have one more question. And that is, how do you test location-based apps, right? Because I'm doing this work, I'm sitting at my desk, it's running on my machine, and mm-hmm. I want to test, what does this look like if I drop the app somewhere in the middle of Kansas, right? And I tell it to map to Washington, D.C., or tell the car to drive to Washington, D.C. You know, I want to see what decisions it's making as it kind of ghosts its way across. Is there a good way to do that? You could spoof location and you could uh, get, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, there, there are ways to do that. And again, I think I think you gave, uh, we are also on Twitch, uh, Twitch uh, twitch.tv slash here dev. And, and I think you gave me a really good idea for my next uh, sort of uh, podcast with uh, some of my engineers. Uh, I, think, yeah. I think I can do that. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I can just see, right, you know, I tell it, okay, well, just use my current location or even if I drop it on my phone. I'm still sitting in my office and I'm not going to go walk around with it because I can't debug it. So, you know, that that kind of thing would be handy. It's like, okay, how do I fiddle with this? I was just going to ask, kind of in addition to that, are there tools that make spoofing easier or do you provide any kind of thing or mocking? However, I mean, to me, it seems basically an equivalent to a kind of mocking. So we have an uh, Android SDK and uh, iOS SDK. And within those, uh, you know, you have the ability to do that. Uh, again, you know, I can I can get more details on that and probably follow up even on a blog post or something. So, yeah, that's cool. Anything else we should cover before we do picks? The only other thing I'd say is, uh, look, I mean, um, how is location impacting the public sector, right? The governments uh, or, or how is mobility services affecting or shaping the future of uh, or I should say, how is mobility services affecting the future of mobility in cities, in modern cities, smart cities, so on and so forth. When you talk about mobility, how is that different from location? See, mobility is uh, is sort of the overarching term for all of location. Location is a subset of that mobility, right? Mobility is services, your public transit, uh, your all of those come into traffic, into traffic flow, traffic flow, your road congestion, um, your, your gotcha. utilization of uh, infrastructure, uh, public transportation uh, utilization. All of that becomes sort of uh, um, urban mobility, so to speak. Well. I think that we're going to have to have a huge shift in our technology when jetpacks and flying cars become a thing. <laughs> yes, but but you know, in fact, one of the countries uh, that that we work with, uh, United Arab Emirates, particularly Dubai, is so far into these self-driving cars and uh, automated cabs. 
they are they're literally at the forefront of, of adopting all of these futuristic mobility services, including uh, you know flying taxis, flying robo taxis, so on and so forth. There's a big change uh, uh, that is going on in the world of uh, urban mobility. Uh, especially you know with driverless cars coming into picture where you know i, I really think in it's it's the the future in our lifetimes we'll see the fundamental shift happening from people dri- buying cars to people subscribing to a car service because if you think about our cars you know 80% of the time 85% of the time they sit in a garage they sit idle you know we don't get full utilization of these cars so i think i think there is a fundamental shift uh, waiting to happen and again, once that self-driving technology and uh, kicks in, or or uh, the autonomous world kicks in, you know, it fundamentally changes the way we move. A lot of uh, smart cities uh, and urban planners are already thinking about that, and we are working with quite a few cities and uh, governments to, you know, help make that reality happen. I can't wait till I can do a Star Wars <laughs> movie marathon, get half of it done, go do business in uh, Los Angeles, and then watch the <laughs> other half on the way back. You know, be careful what you wish for. It might be just around the corner. <laughs> right? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I'd love to talk to somebody who's designing some of that self-driving car technology, but that's another show. I mean, maybe you could get Elon. That would be an exciting Oh, yeah. <laughs> Elon and I are like brothers. Yeah. In other words, we act like we don't know each other. <laughs> <laughs> You'll need a joint or two on your podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure where we want to go with this next. I mean, for one thing, if everybody knows where I am, I mean, that that could be scary for some people. And for other people, it's just generally a convenience factor, you know, which is kind of what you're talking about. The the other angle on this that I want to hit is, and I don't know which we'll hit first. So as a developer, how do do I think about location services and things like that that I'm building? and, And how do I integrate it into my app Most Ruby developers are going to be web developers. So how does it affect things there? And then, yeah, if I move over to Ruby Motion or I build a mobile app to it, how do I handle all that stuff too? Great question. So, you know, let's start with the first question because that is always on top of mind, right? Like privacy. Privacy is a big issue uh, and and, a very important uh, uh, thing for all consumers. And we at here, you know, I want to uh, say this out front is we are a privacy first company. What privacy first means is we don't, by default, opt you in. By by default, we opt you out of all of our services. Uh, uh, and in our app, uh, if you've used Here We Go, and the new Here We Go that we are building will also be based on that fundamental piece. And with privacy uh, in mind, you know there are there are multiple ways, and there are multiple companies, both uh, small and large, uh, that are using this uh, for for a different way. There's there's been a lot of for uh, in the market right now, or or in the in the general public perception that um, you know you're being tracked all the time. You know the the point is you are one of the billion or one and a half billion devices that is being tracked, right? So you're the needle in the haystack, and nobody's looking for the needle. We are just we just want to know you can draw insights on the haystack, and and that is what is happening. Your simple traffic service that you get from um, your smartphone, right? This is because, you know, the masses have opted in or by default in in a few ecosystems opt you in and the whole data is anonymized and then, you know, uh, leveraged as a service and, and exposed so that everybody can benefit out of it. If somebody had a malicious intent, um, you know, could they get to the bottom of it and figure out where Charles is? 
I think I think there is there is but that that goes to you know with anything right like your Windows device your anything that you put on the cloud um, you know I think I think if somebody had started off with with malicious intent yes of course uh, you could absolutely pinpoint um, you know if you if you think about it pretty much all of our lives uh, are online right now right from our banking to our home address to our work documents everything is is residing somewhere on the cloud. So if, if people had a malicious intent, I'm sure they could do way more harm. But this anonymized concept of uh, of the group, the data of the group, and then exposing that as a service, I think there are there are a lot of benefits to that. So yeah, take it take it for what it's worth. But but that being said, you know we respect privacy and we are a privacy first company and we don't share data. Our business is not based on selling your data or anonymized data or anything. We we are not in that business. You know, one of my concerns with geolocation history is being able to start to identify patterns of a particular user over time. And one instance that comes into mind with this is if you have an Android device and if you've yes. ever used Google Maps on there, if you go to google.com forward slash maps forward slash timeline, then right. that's going to show you in history of where you've been. So if someone were to compromise the same account that you have your Google Android device signed in as, then they're going to be able to kind of track your movements over time to start to develop patterns. And that could potentially be used to harm an individual. So from that perspective, I think that there is actually a lack of consumer awareness that this is going on in the background and that data just keeps getting aggregated more and more. Yeah, uh, Dave, you bring up a really, really good point. You're absolutely right that if, if a device or a company is collecting data and over a time, you know, you can easily build a pattern. I'm sure all of our lives are more or less the same or exciting because we wake up in the morning, go to work, you know, drop kids and, and in the evening pick them up and go back home. So it's very easy over a period of even 10, 20 days or even a month, uh, you know, to figure out where your work location is, where your home is, which school your kids go to, and, and a lot of inferences could be drawn and, and a pretty accurate model to be built around our lives. In between, if you go to the grocery store, I'm sure we are all creatures of habit. So we go maybe to the same grocery store that's close by to our place. Uh, so you know which grocery store you go, you get the point. And that is why I think it's really important for these companies uh, to sort of uh, come out and understand that you need to be privacy first, right? Like uh, if you remember the big uh, uh, billboard that Apple put out at CES last year, you know, it was it was this glaring, massive billboard that says uh, that said what happens on an iPhone stays on an iPhone. That's a company that takes privacy uh, seriously and keeps your data, you know, to yourself, frankly, because it's your data. Apple's data, uh, Apple's business model, nor our business model, nor a few other companies' business models are not built around your data, right? Uh, but but this is different for Google, and and I think if you talk to them, you know, they they probably say that hey, we are we are giving everyone a heads up about what's happening because when you click that EULA, we are somewhere in that 367 pages, we are capturing, you know, a small bullet that says hey, by the way, your location, you're opted in. If you want, you you can opt out. Again, this has been the big bone of contention uh, with the government and with Google offline, if you, if you remember Sundar testifying, or for that matter, Mark Zuckerberg testifying with Congress. And I see that as a problem uh, with, with a few of the large companies. And that brings up to you know another point uh, that Charles was talking about. How can developers uh, make use of this uh, uh, location services, right? 
this is the gap, right? This is where we can, there's, there's a huge opportunity for innovation where somebody can build an app, including us, that can think about users first and foremost and allow you to capitalize your data and allow you to even monetize your data because that is that is where uh, the industry in general is headed. And all the data that you generate, think about it, you, you generate, your cars generate, your phones generate. There is so much data just a single person is generating that is valuable to all of these companies. Now, if you're able to leverage that own data uh, for, you know, for, for whatever reason, right, for uh, value-added services, uh, for uh, even plain dollars or euros or uh, rupees or wherever you're in the world, there, there's a monetization aspect that, that you could take there. And there are no marketplaces today that enable it. So this is the innovation that I see that could happen. But this all starts with the first concept that, you know, it's, it's privacy first, your data belongs to you, and you are, should be in full control on where your data goes and how your data goes. So to continue a little bit down this vein of privacy, but to kind of move a little farther along, I was, how does here, right, since you're kind of here representing them, how do you how do you guys deal with it, right? So for example, if I'm a developer and I'm leveraging your technologies, I'm therefore accessing data from other people, right? How are you dealing with that aspect? I, I assume that I, as a developer, can't just be like, well, I just want to get to Chuck's data and under and you know where he's gone or where Dave has gone, right? Yeah. I assume that all that's protected. I, I guess I was just wanted to give you an opportunity to like talk through like, what do you guys do to protect against whatever this situation other scenarios yeah like i said uh, you know we we uh, respect and enable privacy our business model again to emphasize is not based on uh, getting your your data and neither do we monetize nor do we use it uh, in in our services but uh, that being said you know the a- application developers are using our services and then the application there is there is a layer where we provide the backend and then the application comes in and and let's say yelp is using uh, our uh, just just uh, i wouldn't take yelp but uh, uh, talk Think about food delivery services company that is using our services. By default, uh, they would be uh, opting out. You know, we would not be opting you in by default uh, for sharing your data. But at the same time, food delivery services company would need to know where you are so they could they could show you all the uh, restaurants in and around you. At that point, you know, we hand over uh, to the uh, application uh, company or services company, and then they they handle the privacy from there on. Can I, as a, you know, I guess we'll call them a bad actor here, right? Can I, as a developer that's being a bad actor, override mm-hmm. your, your kind of default opted out choice and force everybody to be opted in? So if I'm creating a totally new app, yeah. can I basically just kind of be overriding that setting without letting my users know? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think that, is, that is possible to, okay. uh, possible to do. So it's, that's fair. It's a danger. That's it's not your responsibility, but yeah. Yeah, but but that is the case uh, with everything, Chuck. I mean, you you think about it, right? Like, can you use a car to go from point A to point B? Absolutely. Can you use a a, a car to sort of, you know, if you had bad intentions, you could uh, you could do a lot of damage with a car. That could also happen. Totally answers my question. And then you have companies like Facebook. This was just released, where even if you opt out of their tracking, they're still tracking you. And I think they just got in some big trouble for that. I haven't been following this story, but it's out there. So what can someone do other than putting their phone into airplane mode to protect themselves? 
I just want to address John's point here for a second before you answer that question. And that is that if you're building an app that uses here, you're giving the information to the app and then the app is handing it off to here, right? And so from that point, from using the services provided by here or some other service, geolocation service, yeah, that's all private, but you can hand it off to, uh, you know, like, you know, some other actor, you know, send it off to some other service that isn't secure. So I think that's where you could see that information get hijacked. Yeah, I'm assuming I'm assuming from both your answer to us, Mithun, what you just mm-hmm. said, Charles, and just my basic understanding of it, the deal here is that in order for somebody to act maliciously, they would have to write an app that like you just pointed out, yeah. Chuck. I would have to then send that data off somewhere else and maliciously use it in yeah. some way. Or not properly protect it before it goes to a service like here. Anyway, uh, go ahead and answer Dave's question. Sorry, Dave, can you, can you repeat your question again? So how does a consumer protect themselves without having to go so paranoid and putting their phone in airplane mode? Even if you put your phone on airplane mode, uh, you know, at that point, your phone is pretty much uh, not usable, right? Like, <laughs> that's, that's a tricky question, Dave. That's, that's the million dollar question. I'd, if you want to use your phone, I think, uh, I think the phone needs to know which cell tower to use based on that cell tower, you know, the signals jump. So once you, as I said, you know, once you start peeling those layers, um, I think, I think uh, if you really want to know where Dave is, you know, let's say you're driving down uh, the interstate, you know, I live in Seattle. So if I'm driving down 520, there's a handoff that happens between a cell tower at the beginning of 520 to the end of 520, where it is downtown Seattle, then probably Bellevue, uh, uh, which is which is on the other end of the bridge. And then from Bellevue, as I keep going, you know, the, the handoff happens. So it's it's a you could start tracking if you need to. But, but you know, this is always the give and take of technology, right? Like, uh, I mean, you use technology for a good purpose. You can stay connected anywhere with anyone at any time. Otherwise, you want to go completely off the grid, you can, but you lose the advantages of, you know, technology. But at the same time, you know, the, uh, I, I think I think a happy balance uh, comes into picture where, you know, your regulation kicks in, right? Like, um, you know, that's that's where GDPR and the likes of it come to to ensure that, you know, your people are protected, so nobody is tracking where Dave is going, and it's all anonymized. But you're still getting the benefit of the technology and the advancements in the technology. And at the same time, you know, people figure out a different way to monetize. Uh, in in this case, you know, people are monetizing not based on your location, but the based on the usage of your of the telecom service that you're paying a monthly bill on. Does that sort of answer your question? Yeah. One thing that I do is to limit what I actually install on my phone. So I really only keep the apps on my phone that I'm actively using. Things that, you know, like, for example, the Facebook thing. I don't even keep Facebook installed on my phone. If I want to connect with some friends, then I'll actually get on my computer and then log on to Facebook. So, you know, that solves a couple of issues. One around the geolocation worries that fewer apps, that's a fewer service area that could be attacked. And then also just not being on my phone all the time, you know, to just reduce how much I'm actually on my phone, even though it's with me wherever I go. Those are definitely good suggestions. And, you know, that would definitely uh, help curb some activity. But but at the same time, you know, if you had a proper ethical company and you had uh, more regulation that actually cared about protecting people than corporations, then, then you know, I, th- I don't think we would have worried. Uh, we need we needed to worry that much. But that's a slippery slope, I think, right? So, yeah. so there's always a fine balance on, on what to do, where to do. Look, I mean, if I were to go go far, 
you have Facebook installed on your, or you use Facebook on your desktop computer, you know, there are cookies that are tracking where you go. Let's say you went to Target, you purchase something on Target.com, that Target.com cookie, you know, has the information about uh, where you're getting it, what you purchased, where you went, the whole whole thing, you know, from there, you know, they could sort of build a mental model back on saying like, okay, Dave lives in Bellevue, Washington, here's how, uh, so on and so forth. All I'm saying is, look, if there's if there is a bad actor with bad intentions, you know, yeah. trust yeah. trust yeah. God, but lock your doors. <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right. Well, let's go for some picks. Dave, do you have some picks? Yeah, sure. So... One is the Google Remote Desktop. It's an extension where you can set up your computers to remote desktop into them to remotely control. I was using TeamViewer before, but they've really just kind of irked me lately, saying that I'm using it for commercial purposes, but I'm really just trying to help my parents fix you know, their printer or whatever. So Google Remote Desktop has been a good alternative for me. And then I've been getting into 3D printing a lot more recently. And it's because the reason why I stopped is I was just getting horrible prints left and right for like a year. So I just kind of lost some motivation. But I recently switched to a different filament, which is the medium that it uses from a company called Hatchbox. And Hatchbox, I've not gotten one failed print ever since using them. So a big shout out to their filaments. They are really, really cool. Awesome. John, do you have some uh, picks for us? Yeah, yeah, I do. So my first one is a book called Never Split the Difference that I have been reading recently. More or less, it's for anyone who runs into situations in life where you might need to negotiate. And it's not so much that I'm being told how to negotiate is, so I'm not done with the book, but I feel like, I feel like what he's telling me is this is what is going on in this negotiation. And here's how you would deal with a specific scenario, right? Or here are techniques that you can deal with. I feel like my ability to understand my own particular failings when I'm trying to navigate negotiations is growing greatly through this book. Anyway, I am like thoroughly enjoying this nonfiction book, which is very odd for me because I don't read nonfiction. Oh, I love that book. (laughs) It's awesome. It's written by that FBI... Uh, yeah, Chris Voss. Uh, yeah, Chris Voss, who, who was a crisis negotiator. Yes. Uh, and yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I met Chris Voss about two years ago. And then I said, I love your book. And he said, I'm not that Chris Voss. <laughs> I thought it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> Did you he, go to lunch with him because you thought it was that Chris Voss? No, he, he was doing some other stuff that I was interested in as well. <laughs> okay. But I was like, I was like, oh, your background's so interesting, and I really love this book. And he's like, he's like, yeah, that's not me. And I'm like, oh, so your background's different. Tell me about it. <laughs> nice. But yeah. Nice. Okay. So, and then my second pick. So I've been on a couple different episodes before, and both times I've recommended a different scotch, and I have another one today as well. There's kind of like two kinds of scotch that you drink, right? You sort of have the one that's like a bit cheaper, but is good that you can have more often. And then you have your really expensive stuff that you only bring out when you have guests and things, right? It's tough to find like a good kind of value scotch, right? Those like cheaper ones that are really good. And I ran into this one 
totally on accident because the guy that gave me a recommendation, he gave me like four recommendations and I didn't like three of them. But this one was fantastic, not for the reasons he said. So it's called Kilcaran or whatever. It's a 12-year-old scotch. It's a super awesome value scotch. It comes in like between, uh, it depends on where you get it, I guess, but I can find it online for like 40 bucks, right? 40, 50 bucks. You can get it at a store for like 60 bucks, which for like a single malt scotch is ridiculously good. So it's cheaper than your Macallan 12. It's really good. It's like, it's, it's definitely like, it's like a middling tier. If I were to put the Macallan 12 at like a low tier, right? Which it's not, but whatever. So for people who might be into scotch or looking for a value scotch, I totally ran into this. It's amazing. Big fan. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, I don't actually drink, so I'll just pretend you gave some awesome ice cream picks. <laughs> My wife has some of those. Yeah. She's well, into that. <laughs> yeah, and ice cream's kind of the same way, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to go get the great value because I just want ice cream, or I'm going to go get like the what's better than Ben and Jerry's. Anyway. We're into Bluebell. That's our, Bluebell. That's our, yeah, that's, that's that's our value thing. staple, but really good, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Or go to a Cold Stone or something. Anyway, I'm going to jump in That's with a few treat. picks. couple of things. First of all, the audiobook for the Finding a, Your Dream Developer Job guide should be out soonish. I think I mentioned that at the beginning of the show. I really appreciate all the people reading it and you know telling me what they liked and giving me feedback. Just absolutely love it. Another pick that I'm just going to throw out there is that we are still looking for one or two more people to jo- join this show. So if you love Ruby Rogues, you've been wanting to be on the show, let me know. You can just email me, chuck at devchat.tv. I've been reaching out to a few people like John, but it's always nice to just kind of hear, oh, I wanted to be on the show because then I then we can talk about it. And then one last pick, and this is a game. It's actually been picked on the show before. I think it was picked in episode one or two, but I've been playing it a bunch with a bunch of my friends and we've really been enjoying it. It's called Letters from Whitechapel. So one player plays uh, Jack the Ripper, a serial killer, and everybody else plays the detectives trying to find him. The Jack the Ripper's objective is to get from the murder scene to the hideout without getting caught all four rounds. And if he can do that, he wins. If he ever gets caught or can't make it to his hideout by the end of the any given round, then he loses. And so the detective's job is to find him and arrest him. And the way they do that is they, they move around the board and they look for clues. And the Jack the Ripper character will just tell them if he's been in the location they checked. You know, there's some setup and things like that that, you know, it's it's a little more involved than all that, but it's it's a chase across London and it's a ton of fun. Nice. So I'm gonna what pick is the game that. again. It's called Letters from Whitechapel. Letters from Whitechapel, okay. Yep. Our other staple is Shadow Hunters, and that's kind of like werewolf with a game board in front of you, and you have the opportunity, instead of voting for people you're gonna eliminate, you have a hidden identity, and each identity has a special power that they, they have if they reveal who they are. But if you reveal who you are, then the opposing faction may come at you. It's a lot of fun too. And it plays in like 20 minutes to a half hour, even with like seven or eight people. Yeah, so you wind up attacking other players and you move down the damage um, board. And when you get to your spot where you're out of damage, then you're dead. The whole point is for your faction to be the last one standing, unless you're a neutral, right? You're not part of the Shadows or the Hunters. In which case you have like some special criteria. So one of them's like the person on your left, it wins, then you win. Or, mm. you know, if you have these three <clears throat> equipment items, then you win, things like that. But it's a relatively simple game and really, really enjoy it. So I'll pick that as well. Very nice. Mithun, do you have some picks for us? 
I just finished this morning. I finished uh, The Culture Code uh, by Denise Coyle. I don't know if you guys have read that. Actually, it, it, it goes into, you know, what makes high-performing teams uh, really stand out and uh, what, what gets them there. And it talks about the importance of building culture uh, in a company and in a team and how it can be, you know, how it can make all the difference from a low-performing team to a high-performing team, companies, what be it. I really enjoyed that book, um, you know, so much so that as soon as I came to office this morning, I asked my admin to order, you know, uh, books for every one of my team members uh, nice. to read that. Uh, so, yeah, Culture Code by Denise Coyle. And I'm sort of a word nerd. Uh, I was looking at my phone. Uh, I, I recently installed uh, through an ad, which I've never done, Puzzlescapes. I installed this. It's uh, It's just like, you know, a new way of making words uh, through, you'll get a bunch of letters and you, you start keep making words and uh, take you from one level to another level. I, I'm a big uh, junkie for that. So <laughs> that's keeping me busy. And, you know, my daughter who is six, uh, you know, I, I got her into this and she's uh, she's loving this as well. And it's also helping her sort of improve her vocabulary. So <laughs> Nice. All right. If people want to find you online, Twitter, GitHub, etc., where do they go? Absolutely. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Mithun D, uh, M-I-T-H-U-N-D. And on LinkedIn, it's Mithun Dhar, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Mithun D. Yeah. And, and if they need to email me, Mithun.dhar at here.com. And I'll, I'll give you all of these so you could post it up. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming and uh, talking through this stuff with us. I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for having me, Chuck. And uh, nice meeting you, Dave and John. Enjoy speaking with you all. Yeah, great. Talk to you later. Thanks. All right. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>